Hi there, and welcome to Calm After the Storm, Survivorship and Other Stories with Amy Syed. This episode is brought to you by the Quantum Genius Program. Today, we're going to talk to someone who has a harrowing story of survivorship and thriving there afterwards. We do want to start by sharing a content warning. Information shared on our podcast can be graphic in nature, and we recommend that you review the details of our podcast before listening. We appreciate you tuning in, and we hope that the story shared with you today is inspirational and helps you get through tough times that you may be facing. Welcome again to Calm After the Storm. This week, I will be speaking to Brenda Vanderzanden. Brenda is a certified life and mindset coach, EFT and mindfulness practitioner. Her focus is helping women build resilience after experiencing a personal or professional setback. Brenda's mission is to teach her students to use mindset, mindfulness, and manifestation to reconnect with their inner strength and work through their fear and failure. So to start off, Brenda... Tell me a little bit about your childhood and what your mindset was like when you were growing up. My childhood was great. When I was younger, I lived in different provinces, actually three different provinces before we finally moved back to Ontario. Which provinces did you live in? I was born in Ontario, so Toronto, and then I moved to Alberta and then Saskatchewan and back to Ontario for university. So (laughs) I moved quite a bit. Through the moving and whatnot, I was able to see a lot of the West Coast, which was great, but Although every city that we lived in, it was my parents tried as best as possible to make sure that we were comfortable and that we acclimated as well as we could. But the problem with that was that we would make friends and then we'd have to move again and then we'd make friends and have to move again. So there was a lack of stability in that. But again, my parents tried to compensate by making us as happy as possible by putting us in sports and trying to make us involved in the communities, whatever communities we were a part of at the time. So it was interesting in that way. And can you expand a little bit more about how you were involved with the communities that you were in at that time? Can you give us a couple of examples that really stand out to you in your memory? I was a competitive gymnast for three years and then I started coaching after that. So in that community, I was very much involved. And then Outside of that, I was also part of the Girl Guides community. My parents were actively involved with the parents who had to support their children in competitive sports. So (laughs) in that way, we were able to network as well. Very, very cool. And you were saying that you came back to Ontario to go to uh, university? Yes. And what did you study and how did life look like after that? I studied economics, but it's interesting because when I was in university, I wasn't, even though I had the grades to get into university, for some reason I lost focus and it was hard for me to get good grades (laughs) for the first couple of years. So I started out in commerce. And then eventually I decided to try my hand at economics because that's what my dad had studied. So I enjoyed that, but it was a lot more difficult and it wasn't exactly what I wanted. So I didn't like what I was studying. And unfortunately, that's how I spent the majority of my university years, not really enjoying what I studied. Mm, I see. Okay. So you came out of university and then you walk me through kind of like what life looked like and all leading up to getting pregnant with the twins. Yeah. So after university, I decided to, again, try working in business in the business field. So I worked at a bank 
for some time. And then I decided that it was time to move back to Toronto because my parents had moved back from Saskatchewan to Toronto. And from there, I ended up getting a job at Rogers Communications in the marketing department. But after working there for about a year, I thought, you know what, business is just not for me. I felt like it was just not the right fit. For whatever reason, it wasn't as much as I tried. So I decided to pack my things and I wanted to move to Korea because I had always loved English growing up, but I never thought I could find a job in that. So I remember telling my parents that I was going to move to South Korea and they thought, what are you talking about? Like You've studied so hard. <laughs> you're working in marketing. Now you want to go abroad and you're going to be so far away from us and you want to teach English. Like what? Where's the connection between all of this? But I just, yeah, I told them, just trust me. I know that this is what feels right. <laughs> and they had to trust me. They let me go. And I was there for three years. And that's where I met my husband. And we decided to move back to Toronto because he's actually from the States. And from there, two years after we got married, I found out that I was pregnant with twins. Tell us about the process of finding out that you were pregnant with twins and kind of what happened during the pregnancy. My pregnancy with my twins was like super tough. Yes. I told people that there's no such thing as morning sickness because I had all day sickness and all night sickness. Yep. It was really, really taxing on my body as much as I loved it. It's just it's a very different experience because I've also had one afterwards and totally, totally polar opposites in experience. So I really want to hear about what your experience was like through the pregnancy. Well, first of all, when we first found out that we were having twins, it was a shock because <laughs> we weren't expecting it. For some reason, I felt like in my body that I was going to have a girl and it was just going to be one, a singleton. But no. <laughs> so it took us about a week to digest that information. <laughs> but seven weeks into the pregnancy was when, as you said, all day sickness hit and it was so extreme. Yeah. It was awful. I remember going to my OB gynecologist and I told her that the morning sickness was really, really bad. I was teaching at the time, teaching English at a college in Ontario. And I found it really hard to stand there and to be teaching while at the same time having this nausea all the time. It was just incessant. It didn't relent at all until the second trimester. But the first trimester, I tore my esophagus as a result of it. I lost 20 pounds as a result of all of that. Uh, I had to see a dietitian because I tried like everything that I could to keep the food in me, but it just nothing seemed to work. It was a miserable time and I felt so much guilt because we wanted our children and we were so excited to have twins, but yet that journey to having them come into the world was so taxing, as you said, on my body. And I felt a lot of guilt because I wasn't happy or with the experience that I was having, which was so far from what I imagined it was going to be. A lot of disparity between what we're sometimes fed by the media or what you see out there when it comes to pregnancy, right? And then actually experiencing it so that that becomes kind of stressful too, I would say. Yes, for sure. How was giving birth and what happened right after that? Actually, even before that, at six and a half months, I had gone in for a routine checkup and the doctor had told me that I had to admit myself to the hospital that same night because one of my twins was not thriving, which means that they were not growing at the rate that they were supposed to be at six and a half months. So they needed to check that and monitor on a daily basis. And to me, I felt like my body was fine. Like I didn't really comprehend or understand. Of course, I understood what they were saying, but I just couldn't comprehend the gravity 
of what they were saying to me because I felt okay. And so therefore I assumed that the babies were supposed to be okay too. That wasn't the case. So that day I went home, we were supposed to move the next day to a house. (laughs) I had to tell my husband I couldn't help him. He had to move and pack and everything on his own. He dropped me off at the hospital and I remember that night just being in tears because I couldn't understand what was happening. Like This was not supposed to be my journey. Reason being that I was an athlete. I had always taken care of myself. I had, you know, I could write a list of things athletic-wise that I had done, that I had accomplished, but why was this happening? Like, I just, I couldn't understand. So fast forward to the night before they were born. It was about 12 o'clock in the morning. And I felt like there was a lot of movement from one of my twins, Logan is his name, but not a lot from the other, Connor. And I remember just poking and talking to him and trying to move him. And every time I'd sing that both of them would move. But again, this time Connor wasn't moving. So I got up, I went to the nurse's station because I was in the hospital for a month up until that point. I told her that there was something going on and I wanted her to check it. So we went, we checked for about an hour. She monitored, we poked, prodded. I stood up, I sat down, I did everything. And then finally, after an hour, I felt like I had to go to the washroom. So I went and I came back and I went back on the table and she checked. And that's when Connor lifted up his arm and then he put it down very slowly. And the doctor said, you know what? Your baby's tired of fighting. It's time that you're going to meet him. I know it's sooner than we expected at seven and a half months, but it's time for him to come out. That was a lot to grasp at that moment. I had to call my husband, I called my family, and I let them know that we're going to be meeting both of them early. That's terrifying, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was shocking because <laughs> it was, again, so far from what was the plan, what I had mapped out for myself. Nine months. That's how it's supposed to be. That's how it's going to be for me. Didn't turn out that way. So walk me through now. You're terrified. You've spoken to everybody. Everyone knows that they're coming. What happens? Right before the surgery, they told me that I had to have an emergency C-section. That's when my family came in. They prayed for me and they hugged me. And my husband was there and we were both just looking at each other and thinking, this is sooner than we expected. We haven't even unpacked our house, but yet we're going to meet our boys in three hours from that point. We both had tears in our eyes because we were excited, but at the same time scared because we didn't know what to expect. We didn't know whether or not he was going to survive. That was essentially the news that we were getting, that this was urgent because we didn't know if he was going to survive another day. So, yeah, we had the C-section and we heard cries from both. But what was the most challenging within that situation was that they had to whisk them away. I couldn't hold them. Because Logan, who was the the one that was okay in my womb, he was having trouble breathing on his own. So he had to have a CPAP machine put on right away. And eventually, maybe after about 10 or 15 minutes, they wheeled me into the other room and I was able to hold Connor, the little one. He was so tiny, 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 tiny. He was two pounds, 11 ounces. So, oh my God. Yeah, he was so small. And again, it was a shock because I wasn't expecting him to be as small as he was. And he wasn't even the length of from my, the tip of my finger to my elbow. He was smaller than that. And they put him on my chest and he just clung to me. And I, I just remember holding him and just, I was so happy, but I almost feel teary eyed thinking about it. But I'm going to take your time. Yeah, it was a shock, but. There was so much love for him, holding him and knowing that he was okay. And 
that he was moving, but he was just so small and it was life changing in that moment for sure. Absolutely. So they were admitted to the NICU. Yes. And I know that from my own experience, because my twins were also in the NICU for a while after they were born, it's a tough experience, isn't it? Can you kind of walk me through like what it looked like to you at that time? Actually, there's a little bit of a story before they got to the NICU. (laughs) We found out that the hospital that I delivered at didn't have enough room in their NICU. So they had to transfer the boys to another hospital, which means that they weren't going to be in the same vicinity, same hospital as I was. I had to recover and I had told my husband, go to the hospital, check on them, make sure that they're okay. But that night I was by myself. I wasn't with my babies, which was very difficult. So I stayed at the hospital for two days. You know, my family came, my husband came to visit, but every time I'd be like, go and check on them, make sure that they're okay. So the second day when I was limping, (laughs) trying to get to them, I was so excited to see them. But the nurses had informed me that they were going to be under the lights and I didn't expect them to have the masks on or anything like that. So they told me, yeah, they're in the corner over there. Go and see them. But I looked and I went there and I I didn't see them (laughs) because it wasn't what I was expecting to see. And they said, no, they're right there. Oh, my gosh, that's them. Like, why are they covered up? Why do they have the lights? I don't understand. So there was a lot of that that confusion and that overwhelm that I was already experiencing from the past couple of days. And then to see them under these, I think it's photosynthesis lights or because they had jaundice and I was like, Oh, what is this? (laughs) Again, tears. So (laughs) that was the introduction to the NICU. If I were to find a highlight in that experience, it was being able to form a community with all the other moms that were there because their babies needed additional help or support So going into the breastfeeding room and being able to talk to them, being able to cry with them, being able to share our wins and our experiences on a day-to-day basis. Like we became friends and we exchanged numbers after that. And that was the support that I really needed because they understood more than anyone else could at that time. So it was beautiful in that sense, in retrospect. But at the time it was still like, oh, you know, it was tough. It was so hard. I don't know if you guys did this, but I remember when my twins were in the NICU, we used to have weigh-ins like all the time, right? At the end of every day. And that would determine whether or not your baby would be able to come home. Yes. So we'd all be assembled beside the incubators and like, you know, waiting for the weigh-in, all excited (laughs) to see how much weight they've gained. Yeah. It was just such an interesting experience, wouldn't you say? For sure. How long did your baby stay in for Mine were not in there for that long. They were in there for two weeks, but they released me from the hospital. So they released me before they were able to release them and there was nowhere for me to stay in the hospital. So it was basically like a balancing act of driving back and forth. Yep. Then they released one and they didn't release the other because she gained weight faster. So then you've got one at home and you've got the other one in the hospital. So why don't you talk to me about that? Like, what did that look like? So it's two months in the NICU, right? One month. One month in the NICU for your twins. And, and how did that look to you? It was exactly as you described, where it was day in and day out after I was released from the hospital, I'd go home and then I'd go and check in on them and spend the whole day with them for the next month. But I felt like it was a full-time job. Like I was committed to it. I didn't take any days off. I wanted to make sure that I was with them, (laughs) but I didn't realize at the time that there was so much stress on my body that had happened before. And during that time as well, that I wasn't able to produce milk 
as efficiently or as much as I was hoping or I thought I should be able to. There was very little supply each and every day. And I took everything I could, like the milkweed or all of the other suggestions that were given to me. I tried everything and I still wasn't able to produce. So they had to supplement. And that was, again, very difficult because I felt like my body's failing me. I don't understand why I'm not able to produce in a way that was supposed to be natural or so I thought. So that to me was an eye-opening experience to understand that, yes, this is how it should be, but not everyone will have the same experience. There are different outcomes. There are different ways of going about breastfeeding or feeding your children. And I was introduced to that. I was introduced to all the different ways of feeding my children, but not in the way that I expected. But it was a learning experience. I didn't realize that I had PTSD, though, until after I came back from the NICU. I was at home. And the babies were crying, I remember, one morning, and I couldn't respond to them. I felt frozen in my seat because it was almost as if, yes, they're home. There was a sense of relief in that. But suddenly, it was also the realization that I I wasn't around other nurses who could step in to check in on them to support me in that way. My family was there. My parents had moved in to help me. But at the same time, I still felt like the realization of everything that had happened, that survival mode had fallen. And suddenly I was hit with the realization of, oh my gosh, this is what the past month and a half has been. And now I'm home with them. And what am I supposed to do? I'm overwhelmed with the fact that I have to take care of them and I have to feed them. And it was hard. Was this the moment that you realized that things were not okay? Or Absolutely. Because like I said, the fact that my kids were crying and I couldn't respond to them, I couldn't get up and support them or attend to their needs in the way that I expected or wanted to. And I just couldn't. My husband came in and he asked me if I was okay. And I just shook my head. And I remember sitting in the rocking chair, the nursing rocking chair. And I couldn't move. I couldn't move. So he took them. He took care of them. Again, we had the bottles, so he fed them. And then he asked me, he came back and he just looked at me and he was asking, are you okay? And I said, I'm not. I just, I don't know. I couldn't respond to them. I need some help. That was the first time that I realized that something was off with me. What did you do after that? I think you were saying that you had gone to see your OBGYN. Is that who you asked for help? Yeah, I actually went in for the six week checkup and she had asked me, well, she actually noticed that something was off with me because all throughout the pregnancy, even even though it was difficult, she still felt like I, there was energy within me. I was excited about these babies coming. Then at the six week checkup, she noticed something was off. And she asked me how things were. And I said, I feel angry. I feel sad. I feel disappointed. I feel so many emotions about this pregnancy and how everything resulted. And I just feel like I want someone to blame. And I'm not excited about the fact that I'm at home with them. And I know that that's not how it should be. And she was asking more questions just to make sure that I didn't have postpartum depression or postpartum blues. And she was like, you know what? I don't have the capacity to be able to speak to this. I think that something is off with you based on what I've seen and what I know of you. So I'm going to send you to someone who can help you. So she referred me to a psychotherapist and I went to see her and all of the questions that she was asking were specific to postpartum depression or postpartum blues. And because I didn't have any of those specific answers that kind of fit into those boxes, she kept telling me that I think you're okay. You just need to give yourself some time. You're adjusting. It's okay. And again, I went back 
three more times. Same thing. I'd answer and I'd try to give so many answers to her questions. and To fit yourself in those boxes yes, somehow because yeah. you knew you needed the help. Yeah. And that was my cry for help. I didn't know what else to say except to give her all of this information. But yet again, it was, no, you're okay. Just adjust. You're going to adjust. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. So I went home and for almost two years, 18 months, I was basically trying to figure it out on my own. I thought eventually this cloud that's over me is going to pass. I don't know how, but I'll figure it out. And then through that journey, I discovered and decided that I wanted to become a doula because I wanted to support other women who may have had high-risk pregnancies or to support them after they gave birth because it was such a difficult time for me and I wanted to give back in that way. So through my study of becoming a doula, I remember watching this video of a social worker who focused on postpartum depression, postpartum blues. She was describing some of the symptoms around PTSD. And some of the things that she had said was nightmares, not being able to respond to your children in a way that perhaps they need. The biggest one for me was the nightmares because I had that. And then the triggers when my husband and I would watch a Huggies commercial, especially at the time, it was really interesting. They had Huggies commercials with premature babies. And every time I'd see it, I would just be bawling and just be shaking and thinking about my own experience in the hospital with my premature babies. So after listening to her, I thought, you know what, I'm going to call her. I'm going to reach out to her and tell her my experience and let's see what happens. So I called and she asked me to describe every detail as much as I could about what had happened. And when I did, I started shaking. My voice started <laughs> going higher and higher and higher. And she said, you know what, I just need you to sit down. The symptoms that you're showing me are a classic case of PTSD. I'd like you to come in and see me. And I thought, PTSD, this is for veterans. It's not for people who have just had babies. Like it doesn't, I don't understand the connection, <laughs> but she said, no, your experience was so traumatic that it basically changed your cellular DNA. Like it's changed something within you and you need the support. If you want to get through this, you need to come and see me. So I did. And that for me was the beginning of, oh my God, <gasps> there's something on the other side of this. I saw that there was hope to get through that. I felt a kinship with Brenda because I too have twins and my pregnancy was also so difficult. My birthing story was also quite traumatic and often I find birthing stories are part of society that we keep under wraps because we're expected as mothers to focus on the positivity and gift of having our children and because we're considered lucky to be able to conceive and experience it, oftentimes our birth stories get lost in the reality of our own trauma. So during my interview with Brenda, she said she had a prevailing mindset of, I can handle this. Now, oftentimes when we tell ourselves, I can handle this, and we're going into experiences that are becoming toxic, it's because we're going way beyond our own comfort zone. So we're going way beyond what I often talk about as a stretch goal, which improves your productivity and helps you grow as a person into a region of toxicity where you are constantly compromising yourself and your mindset, whether it's your physical self and your mental health to convince yourself that you're able to handle a toxic situation. 
And so how long ago would you say this was? In 2018, September of 2018. So yeah, two years ago. So two years ago, you were, you were visiting with her and did you go through a treatment plan with her? Like what did it look like for you to start to heal what had happened to you? There was a lot of talking, which I didn't think I needed. I wanted to try EMDR, I believe like it was the rapid eye movement. And I, I wanted to try everything else, (laughs) but we started with just talking and that was so therapeutic for me because I felt like I had been talking. I had spoken a lot to my family, to my doctor, to my husband, of course, but there was something about talking to a professional, maybe in my head that it just, it allowed me to release and maybe to not feel like I was being a burden or repeating myself again and again. I felt like there was a safe space for me to share and there was no judgment there. Not that I expected it from my family, but it was a different way of accepting or at least feeling as though there was space for me to talk. And I did. And I talked and I talked and I cried and I vented and there was so much release in seeing her and we didn't end up having to use EMDR (laughs) at all. Yeah. It doesn't sound like you would have needed it after all that, all that talking and healing. It was a lot. (laughs) So it was just the talking and then journaling, like journaling. That was something that she had suggested I do. And I just took to that every single day and I wrote it out and I had started journaling actually throughout the pregnancy, but I closed that journal after the boys came home because I felt like that was one experience. I don't want to go back to that. I still have that journal. I haven't opened it since, but I started a new one where this is the new beginning. This is me healing and this is the process that I need to go through. So that was essentially what I needed, I think, was just that opportunity to share. And that's why storytelling for me is such a huge part of my life now. Being open about our experiences, talking about the things that are difficult, especially considering, you know, first generation Canadian, my parents didn't talk or share a lot about their rough experiences because I think that, you know, they wanted to appear as strong and in control but not allowing their children to see that softer, the vulnerability. It was something that I had seen. It was my example. And I, I lived it. I saw how I was doing that until I finally realized that it was not serving me anymore and it needed to change. I want to actually spend a couple of minutes on this because I think our listeners really benefit from hearing this perspective, right? Of being children of first generation immigrants that come from other countries. Where did your parents come from? They're originally from Ghana, West Africa. Mm-hmm. Something that really resonates with me because my parents are also, you know, immigrants and I was a first generation Canadian is that their generation didn't really have a choice, right? In their mind's eye to talk about their vulnerabilities or their experiences from back home and bring them to this new country because they kind of come into a new country. It's a totally different culture. It's a different language. It's a different lifestyle and they have to acclimatize really, right? To make it work. So there's this entire generation of parents that we've experienced that didn't talk and didn't really focus on those types of things because in some cases it was almost like they were thrown into survival mode themselves, right? In order to have their children and to thrive in this country, right? So we grow up, maybe somebody like yourself, somebody like me, really harnessing that and feeling like that's the right thing to do. 
Can you talk a little bit more about how you've shifted that within yourself? Like now that you're looking at it from a generational perspective, right? In your day-to-day life now and even into the future, right? How you're going to shift it for your own children. What does that look like for you and what does that mean to you? For me, what I came to realize through that experience with the boys and everything was that there was a huge part of me that was attached to this ideal of perfection, having to be perfect. Although I knew (laughs) logically that there's no such thing as perfection, but I strove for it in every aspect of my life. And that's why I mentioned the fact that I didn't do well in school, (laughs) my first year of university. It was surprising to me, but at the same time, I was like, I'm free from my parents. Let me enjoy But I quickly got my wits about me and I (laughs) decided to focus (laughs) because I was not going to waste any time having to repeat any courses. But the core of who I was growing up was always to be perfect at what I did. I didn't show up. I didn't speak. I didn't say anything unless everything was put together. And that's kind of what I had been taught. Even if you're to go out for coffee with your friends, you always had to have everything the appearance had to be put together, lined up. You know, you could never step outside with sweatpants on. And that's the way I used that way of thinking and put that in everything that I did. So how I showed up, how I showed up to work, the work that I did or what I produced was always about making sure that I could sign my name to it because I was proud of what I did. And the reason why the perfectionism kind of showed up in my story with my twins was that my story wasn't perfect. It wasn't the ideal. It wasn't the ideal pregnancy. It wasn't what I thought it was supposed to be. As you said, like there was a miss, there was misalignment or there was a mismatch, if you will, between what I thought it was supposed to be, what I assumed it was going to be, and then the reality. And that reality for me was hard to accept because to me, it showed that I was not perfect that there was a bit of, I don't want to say shame in that, but there was because I couldn't show up and say like, oh, my boys were born, you know, at nine months and I had a regular normal birth, whatever that looks like to whomever. But it was so difficult. It was so hard from start to finish. And that for me was difficult to embrace. So when I finally realized that it was because of my perfectionism that I was holding on to the story and I couldn't let go of it because somehow I maybe holding on to it meant that I had an opportunity to change it or that I didn't want to share it with too many people because I wanted, you know, the outward appearance to be what it was supposed to be perfect. And I realized, no, I can't live like that anymore. I can't show up and pretend that this is what it is when it wasn't. If I'm going to be true to myself, if I'm going to teach my children to be okay with being vulnerable, to be okay with sharing the truth about how they're feeling, tapping into their emotions, not suppressing them, not using other things as a buffer, then I need to be the perfect, well, no, perfect. Notice how I just said that. I need to be the example. (laughs) There's that word again. (laughs) Yes, I know. (laughs) I'm working on it. I'm a recovering perfectionist. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) um, I need to be an example for them by showing up and just being my authentic self, being vulnerable. That for me is the authenticity and helping them to see that it's okay to cry. It's okay to say that something hurts, something is not right, that this is what I expected. But this journey, it may be uncomfortable. 
It may suck, but there's something to be learned at the end of it. So in our discussion today, Brenda talks about her pregnancy and what wasn't perfect. She felt there was a misalignment between what she thought was supposed to be reality and what happened as her true experience. She had a hard time accepting it because it showed her that she wasn't perfect, which caused her feelings of shame. If we talk a little bit about the concept of what is perfect, we as individuals often talk about this because institutionally we've been taught to believe in a world of schooling, work, when we measure our goals, KPIs, what's perfect and what isn't perfect. And we strive for that level of perfection. But in reality, nothing is perfect. Things that occur in nature are not perfect. So when we strive for perfectionism, we become quite unhappy because there's a misalignment between what is actually occurring in our reality and what we believe our reality should look like. So let's talk about how you're doing today. Tell me about the kids. Tell me about also going into your professional life, your mission now to help other women work their way through trauma. Now I'm in a much better place. As I said, the storytelling element was something that was a key part of my healing process. And I didn't realize how important it was until I knew there was November of last year, 2019, where I remember writing in my journal once again, that I wanted to share my story, but in a big way, not because I wanted to share it in front of like a room of 200 people, but I wanted other people to hear that not every pregnancy is perfect. (laughs) Not every pregnancy has the ideal outcome that we see on TV. And so through that, I was invited to actually speak to a room of 50 people. And I remember sharing that story. I was so nervous, but after I gave the microphone back to the host, I felt like I was okay. I could do this. I can still continue about my life. This was part of my story. This is my present. It has influenced my present But going forward, I can make choices about how I want the rest of my life to look. And that's where I thought, okay, I I have a chance to make a new path for myself. How am I going to do this? What am I going to do? So I started looking into coaching. As I said before, I was a doula, but I realized that I didn't want to continue with being a doula because I was too close to me, too close to my own experience. And I needed that separation. So I thought, well, there's something else. What else could I do? And coaching was kind of how I came into it and focusing on helping other women who have experienced personal or professional setbacks, helping them to tap into the mindset, like what is keeping them in that the past experience or in that story, that part of their story that is hard for them to let go of. And then from there, talking about the importance of using mindfulness and accepting our emotions, accepting the stories. And then from there, being able to see what are the the lessons that we can learn from the experience? Because I'm sure not all of it is crap. How have you grown from it? What can you use and implement and integrate into your story going forward? And that's the focus. That's what I do now. I love what I do. But yes, the storytelling piece is so important. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, that's part of what we do here at the podcast too, right? One thing I am going to mention is that we've moved away from talking about stories and talking more about journeys. And the reason why is because we do talk to people a lot of times who have been through abuse and traumatic situations where they had to refute what happened to them. And so a few podcasts ago, one of my guests was uh, a woman who runs a very powerful organization that helps women with domestic violence. And she talked to me about the word story and changing that to journey. And that's what we do now because she said stories can be true and they can be untrue right? And so when you use the word story in that framework, oftentimes people can say, well, you know, it's your story or your perspective, but it's not the truth. When you use the word journey or something that's more deliberate, especially when we're working with people who are survivors of trauma, it just means so much more. So I just something I want to share with you that's been kind of like ruminating in my own mind. And I'm always careful now when I use the word story, how to use it, because it's interesting how the English language works and how words are used to mean so many different things. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to be thinking about that now too. Journey as opposed to stories. I like that. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So in every episode of our podcast, we do ask those who join to dedicate the podcast to someone. Can you talk to me about who you would dedicate this podcast to, who you would honor today and a little bit about that experience? Sure. I would like to dedicate this podcast episode to my sister-in-law who passed away four years ago in 2016, November of 2016. I had only met her once. And the interesting story about that is because my husband and I were in Korea at the time that we started dating and we had made attempts to go and visit them in the States. But each time we would try to visit, she was pregnant. She had two kids. So she didn't want, you know, the company and she just wasn't ready for that, which is fine. Long story short, she ended up finding out that she had breast cancer while she was breastfeeding her second child. She passed away in 2016, but we did have a chance to meet her once when the boys were born. They were six months at the time and it was beautiful. We both cried because we had been wanting to meet each other in person as opposed to through Zoom calls. And at that stage, she had almost lost her vision and the cancer had metastasized. It was very close to the end of her journey. So it was beautiful. And the fact that that was one of her biggest wishes was to meet our boys, her nephews, and she got to, and I saw her interact with her own children. And I thought it was just so beautiful how she was singing with them and she was trying so hard to be present for them. That's the biggest takeaway was how present she was despite her own pain. And eventually, yes, she passed away, but I'm so grateful for the fact that I was able to meet her, that she was able to meet her nephews. And she is the person I'd like to dedicate this episode to. Thank you, Brenda. That's beautiful. And I really, really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. During our conversation today, Something in my mind kept resonating with me, which was the disparity between what we believe our life should look like and what really happens in our lives. And this in our society today causes a lot of challenges for people. 
People feel that they're striving for this future, this reality that they're almost going to make if they make more money, if they have more children, if they have a certain job or they have a certain business or a certain outcome. But the reality is today and right now, we are always trying to be the best that we can be. So in order for us to close that disparity between what we think our life should be and what it really is, I urge all of our listeners today to reevaluate what they are feeling right now in this moment and appreciate and express gratitude for this moment right now. Thank you for listening to Calm After the Storm. The podcast is dedicated to telling stories about survivorship, healing, and thriving after trauma. Tune in next week to hear another incredible conversation. If you like this episode, support Calm After the Storm, Survivorship, and Other Stories by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Calm After the Storm is created by me, Amy Syed, and produced by Quill Incorporated. Special thanks to our guest today, Brenda Vanderzanden. Be sure to check out her initiatives at www.bvzcoaching.com.